Let's pray as we start. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and we pray that you'll prepare our hearts to be fertile grounds for your word to be sown. We pray that the words that we hear today will be in us, take deep root in us, and we pray that throughout our lives it'll bear fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. When my sister gave birth to a beautiful baby about a couple of years ago, I very much wanted to meet the baby. And so the first chance I got, I bought, I booked my ticket from London to um, Virginia, and then I took a bus to New York where my sister and my, my sister's uh, husband lived. Um, and when I entered the house, I hugged my sister, my brother-in-law, and I made a beeline to see uh, my nephew Harvey. And just as I was about to put my arms out and hug the baby, hold the baby, my sister says, uh-uh, did you wash your hands? <laughs> you see, to a parent, every person is a germ factory. Every kiss is a potential hazard, and every hand looks grubby. You want to protect the child from all those things. And why wouldn't they? I mean, parents, actually, not only the people are the problems, actually, the world, as we look at them, uh, parents want to protect their children from the world. This is just the headlines, headlines in South China Morning Post this Friday. These are some of the headlines. One, bird flu lockdown. The Hong Kong government trying to uh, prevent bird flu from, uh, from, from happening any day. Um, Second, CY may have incorrect memories about the, his uh, house modification and things and, and, the, and the, uh, the scandal that has been going on. Fukushima disaster was man-made, about nuclear disaster following the Japanese tsunami and how that was man-made. Second interest rate cut in month, trying to prevent an economic meltdown in Europe and uh, here in Asia as well. You see, a baby is completely vulnerable and parents... To a parent, the, the world looks like a frightening place. And if we stop to think about it, it's not just to a parent. If we really stop to think about it and think, think about all the things that could go wrong in this world, we might, uh, realize, uh, we might realize that as well, that the world is full of physical, emotional, psychological, moral, spiritual danger at every corner. But of course, the South China Morning Post writers... Were not, uh, did not write the headlines with this very, very important fact in their minds. One, that God still is sovereign in this world. That God still reigns in this world. And in a way, Psalm 139 is what allows Christians to continue having children in this terrible world. The hope that we have in the midst of a world that is full of danger. God is uh, God. God knows us. God is with us, and God has made us. Actually, um, sorry, I, I forgot to say, uh, we've ended uh, last week. Ended our uh, series on, on on Acts. We'll pick that up uh, the rest of Acts at some time. And I'm going to go through with the, with with the fact in mind that many of our. Um, Family members will be traveling over the summer. Many visitors will come. These will be, uh, I'm calling this life through the Psalms, and, and each week we'll get something, but hopefully it's not part of a series, so you don't have to sit through the whole thing to, to get something out of it. Um, so life through the Psalms. I think there's a slide back there. Anyway, as a baby's born, we're to remind ourselves that 
that he enters into a world where God knows each one of us. That's first. Psalm 139 is a stunning display of God's omniscience. Um, no? It should just say Psalm 139. Sorry, don't worry about it. Sorry. Uh, Psalm 139 is a stunning display of God's omniscience. God knows everything, and that's how the psalmist begins. So verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. He knows everyone's movements. When we sit, when we rise, he says, not only our physical movements, but psalmist knows our mental movements. I mean, God knows our mental movements as well. God knows our thoughts uh, even before they occur to us. They come to us. He says in verse 2 that you perceive our thoughts from afar. And these unanticipated thoughts, these thoughts that come to, uh, to seem to come from nowhere, God knows them even, be, even, the, even before they come to us. In verse 4, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. God knows everything. But the most amazing thing about this psalm is not that this psalm isn't about God's omniscience in an abstract and philosophical terms. It's not about God knowing everything. It is about God knowing this one psalmist completely. It's about God knowing each one of us completely. It's about God having intimate knowledge of all of us intimately. That's what what this psalm is about. Did you notice how in this psalm, the word God or uh, some form of I or me is in every single verse. Every single verse in this psalm, there's God and there's me. God knows each one of us intimately. It's a deeply relational psalm, and it's about God's personal knowledge of each one of us. But there's something very frightening about such knowledge, personal knowledge. When I was talking to a friend about this, Okay, I was chatting um, online, and she, she, she said this in an ominous voice. She, I mean, she, she, she capitalized everything, all caps. She said, God knows everything. A person who knows where you have been, a person who knows your secret thoughts, a person uh, uh, who knows everything about you, who, who, what you are really like, well, that person, if you're in the midst of that person, that person would probably make you uncomfortable. That's because in this world, in this fallen world, we use knowledge as a weapon, as something, a power that we have over other people. Knowing a secret can give somebody a leverage in a fight. When we fight, we often say things like, remember the time when you did this. In our marriage, friendships, we see how even remembering these things, little things, can be how, how damaging they can be. How we could inflict a lot of pain by remembering and holding this knowledge over the other person. I bet even in a closest marriage, there are something that you want to keep away from your spouse, that so you don't tell um, everything to the other person. You should. You really should in a marriage. But there are, I know that there are instincts in you that you don't want to say everything. You don't want to reveal all of yourself to your spouses because the thought is, really, what if I know everything about you? What if you know everything about me? Can you still really love me? And the reverse is true as well. What if I know everything about you? Can I still love you? That's what's at stake 
Knowledge invokes guilt and it invokes shame and fear as well. So we try to keep things away from each other. But for the same reason, why such knowledge is so frightening, God's love is also so wonderful. If fear keeps knowledge away from each other, love takes the risk of revealing things to one another. Now, for some of you, it might be a long time ago when you, uh, when you dated. It wasn't that long ago for me. Um, but I remember taking the, I, I remember doing this. When you do this, um, when you start dating somebody, you start taking the risk of revealing yourself to the other person. There's gratuitous revelations. You know, you say to, uh, to, to the other person, oh, I'm, I, I did this when I was, you know, 12 years old. And then you wait to see how the other person res- responds. What you're really asking is, can you really love me still? With, the knowledge, with, with you knowing this thing about me, what we're trying to do is we can still, we're testing to see if we can still be loved by the other person. And if, if we're, we are accepted, if we are accepted by the other person, as we reveal ourselves, we feel truly loved. We feel our parents and spouses and our friends love us because they know everything about us, and yet they still choose to love us. They still call us husband and wife, um, ch- children and, and, and friends. You see, in order to be loved truly, we feel we need to be known truly. So we seek to be understood by those who are closest to us. And that is why we experience the pinnacle of love with God. Because there is no space between God and us. God is closer to us than even our thoughts are to ourselves. God knows us completely. And God loves us completely. This is why the psalmist sings in verse 5 and 6. You hem me in, behind me and before me. You have laid your hand upon me. You see, that's, that sounds like an oppressive thing, that God knows everything. You hem me in with your knowledge. That's not what he's saying. He continues by saying, such knowledge is so wonderful for me, too lofty, too lofty for me to attain. God knowing, God, know, God knowing everything is only wonderful it's because, when it's accompanied by God's love. And that's what the psalmist feels. God knows, I mean, he knows, psalmist knows that he's loved by God, even though God knows everything about him. God knows us and loves us completely. And that's the pinnacle of love. And if you don't know this love, if you don't yet know this love, it's because you don't know Jesus Christ. If you know who Jesus is, if you know what he did to, to make us his children, um, if you know who Jesus is, you will know that love. God who knows us completely and loves us anyway. That's the pinnacle of love the psalmist sings about, and that's what we experience in Jesus Christ. So one, God knows each one of us completely, and God would love us completely in Christ. That's the first assurance that we have. The second is that God, God is with us completely as we enter um, into this world in Christ. Once again, um, we call God's complete knowledge um, um, omniscience. God knows everything, all knowledge, omniscience, all knowledge. And God's, pre- God's being everywhere we call omnipresence. 
omnipresence. God is everywhere. God is with us everywhere. We can't escape from God. But once again, this psalm has no such abstract terms, no omniscience or no omnipresence. Once again, this is about God being with each one of us individually, God with us. How God, nothing can separate us from God. That's what the psalm is about. And he sings about this um, as he goes in verse 8. Life and death cannot separate him from God. In verse 8, he says, if I go up to heavens, you are there. If I make bed, my bed in death, you are there. He says, the word depth here is, uh, is underworld, Sheol, the place of death. Even he's saying that God is there in our death as well. He's there early in the morning. He's with us at the far side of the sea, he sings. Which in Hebrew mind, far side of the, sing is, uh, far side of the sea is the, uh, the, the edge of the world. It's the, it's the end of the world. Even if we go to the end of the world, God is there, he says. But once again, we often want to escape from God. When somebody is with you and, and watching you at every place, you want to escape from it, don't you? I had a friend, once again, who confessed to me something that she did and told me that she didn't want to go to church for the first time in her life last Christmas. She did something terrible, and what she said was, how could I go to church? I feel so terrible. I feel so ashamed. And that's something that we all experience in our sin, isn't it? It seems that the psalmist had the same thought in, in, in his mind in verse 11. He said, surely the darkness will hide me. We want to, he wants to hide in darkness. He wants to hide. It happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sin, sinned. They, they want to hide from God. It happened to my friend last Christmas. And it happens to all of us as we sin. We want to flee from God whenever we sin. And actually, when we try to seek solace in the darkness, we become disoriented and lose perspective. See what he says at the, at the second half of that verse 11. He says, the light becomes night around me. What is light? What is good becomes night around him. Uh, around him. What is good becomes evil around him as he seeks um, to run away from God. Once again, thankfully, Christians cannot escape from the love of God. Listen to these words in verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. The picture of God here isn't just God pursuing us. The picture of God here is much more wonderful than that. You escape. You want to escape God. But it's the picture of God who's already there waiting for you at the place that you want to escape to. God is already there. We cannot abandon God. God will not abandon us. And this truth of the old covenant is once again demonstrated fully in Jesus Christ. Jesus went to death, went to hell, in order that we might not be abandoned in our death, that we might not be abandoned in, in, in hell. Remember what Paul wrote reflecting on the grace of Christ in Romans chapter 8, Romans 8, 39, 38 to 39. You know these verses, I'm sure. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers 
Neither height nor depth nor anything else in this creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even when we want to abandon God in our shame, in our guilt, God does not abandon us, but he will guide us out of it. He says that in verse 10, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. God will guide us out of the edge, from the edge of this world. And actually, it's even more than that. When a mother grabs a hold of a child's hand, it's not just for guidance. Though that's part of it. It's, it's more wonderful than that. It's to give a child a sense of assurance, sense of comfort, to let him know that she is there. Your right hand will hold me fast, the psalmist sings. And this God knows his way around. Even darkness is not dark to God. The night shines like the day, verse 12. God who is with you sees everything and will get you out, get you through. Don't make the mistake of thinking that psalm is about God's omnipresence in this world. It is about God being with us, with you, wherever you are. So God knows and loves us. God is with us and will not abandon us. And the third assurance that the psalmist gives is that each person who enters this world is wonderfully and fearfully created by God. It's a bit mysterious, I think, combination, this wonderfully and fearfully uh, being created. Um, I think what it means is that each one of us is created in a way that inspires both fear and awe, fear and wonder. I once had a doctor friend who told me about this, the wonder of our bodies, how so intricate that God made us. He told me that when our heart beats, and I know there are doctors among us here too, when our heart beats, it doesn't just beat, it, sort of, it doesn't squeeze itself like that. It sort of twists itself to bring the, 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 the blood out. Um, and it's that little details that makes our heart and the rest of our bodies work. And when you study, I don't know, the intricacies of our brains or our eyes, we are struck by not only the wonder of our maker, but the fear, the awe of our maker. We are wonderfully and fearfully made. And yet, we so often concentrate on what's wrong with us. We're created in this wonderful way, and God has made us in this wonderful way, but we often focus on what's wrong with us. I mean, there are good reasons for it. When when a newspaper in London um, ran this headline, um, what's wrong with the world? Um, The writer, G.K. Chesterton, a theologian, he wrote back, in an editorial, he, he wrote back just simply and said, dear sir, I am. What's wrong with the world is me, he said. What's wrong with the world is you. What's wrong with the world is us. And anyone who has spent any time reflecting on our nature will come to the conclusion that there is something wrong with us, that we are sinful. But none of the fear and guilt that usually comes with knowing that we are full of sin is actually there in this psalm, in 139. You see, the Bible is not simplistic in its diagnosis. 
It knows that we have sinned and we have fallen, but it also tells us that there, there's the other side as well. It tells us that we are still made in the image of God, that we're still made by God. Did you catch the, this is the most domestic verse in the Bible, verse 13. For you created my, you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. You are knit together. In your mother's womb, you were knit together, woven together by God. God was making you even when your mother didn't know that you existed. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depth of the earth, he sings. If each one of us came with a little tag like our clothes um, do, it would say, handcrafted by God. The psalmist praises God for because we are wonderfully and fearfully made. Apparently, our human body contains 10 trillion cells. 10 trillion cells. That's one with 20 zeros. 20 zeros. You can't count that long in your lifetime. It's, it's just too, too big. That number is too big. Every single one of these cells, every single thing that was needed to go right in your body to make you who you are, to make you different from other people, well, that was done by God. That was all that makes you different was done by God's pur- purposeful design. And the thing with that is, God doesn't just make us and then leave us to be. Verse 16, God, doesn't, God, God sets us on our path. Verse 16, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before, each one, uh, before one of them came, came to be. God made us. And he has ordained us. Uh, he has put, put our life before us, sets us on the path that's designed for us even before our life began. Now, once again, the psalmist is naive about this path. He doesn't say that this path will be full of happiness and wonder and wealth and health. Only that God has lovingly created us. God has set us in this path. And that God will be with us as we walk in this path. And that's the knowledge that makes the psalmist sing in verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. And that is also why we get these verses that also seem out of place in verse 19 through 22. The psalmist is so amazed by God, he cannot stand those who don't get who God is. He can't stand the wicked. He's become impatient with God's patience. He says, slay the wicked. He wants nothing of them. The psalmist's love for God is so great that he hates those who hate God. Verse 22. He wants to be fully God's. He says in verse 23 and 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. He's so struck by the wonder of who God is. He wants to be fully God's. Lead me in the way of everlasting. We live in an awful world. Created good, but definitely fallen. And to some, having babies, I don't know if you've heard this, having babies seem irresponsible. 
we can't afford babies. We can't afford to bring these babies up to this terrible world, they say. And parents are afraid that they, that they or the world will ruin these ch- children. And these fears are justified to a large extent. But, once again, the world is still run by God. And these babies and children are not ultimately ours. God made them. God knows them. And God promises to be with them. These are words of um, Stanley Harawas, um, who's a uh, theologian who wrote about abortion. Actually, this is, uh, this is what, I, what he wrote. Honestly, I cannot imagine anything worse than people saying that, th- that they have children because their hope for the future is in their children. You would never have children if you had them for that reason. You are able to have children because our hope is in God who makes it possible to do the absurd thing of having children. In a world of such terrible injustice, in a world of such terrible misery, in a world that may well be about killing of our children, having children is an extraordinary act of faith and hope. But as children, we can have hope in God who urge us to welcome children. Babies, then, are signs of hope in this world that we have hope in God, that God will take care of them. In fact, it's not that, it, that that hope not only keeps us uh, having children, but it also keeps us living in this world. God knows each one of us. God loves each one of us. God is with us. God will not abandon us. God has made us and has put us in a path that we're on. And that God will keep us going. And that knowledge will keep us going and keep us praising God. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them.